Good to be here. In his book, Love Over Fear, Dan White tells the story of a conflict from his childhood in which he and his friends, some other boys whom he played with, were in a park and somebody's transformer toy came up missing from a duffel bag. Okay? This led to accusations and finger pointing and it escalated to yelling and screaming as the, as the, the boys formed sides in the argument. As the sides were drawn up, White says that his friends literally positioned themselves across from each other. White says that he just stood there frozen. One minute they were playing, the next minute they were at odds. So finally, someone said, Dan, pick a side or go home. White said, sadly, that this rift lasted for three years and they stopped playing together. I don't know about you, but I have some similar memories of conflict uh, from a, my childhood. Maybe you do too, where you're drawn into a conflict like that, maybe on the schoolyard or, or the playground, someone trying to force you into one camp or another. Maybe does that feel like something you might feel right now? Pick a side or go home. You know, what a quote for these days that we find ourselves in. So in essence, that's what's happening in our text today. Jesus, pick a side or go home. This is a familiar story. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you read, you may have a heading at the beginning of chapter 8. Your Bible heading may say something like this. A woman caught in adultery. Or the adulterous woman. I grew up hearing, thinking, even referring to this story as Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Now, after doing some study... After doing some work on this and specifically reading N.T. Wright's commentary on the passage, I wonder if we really, if it shouldn't rather be called Jesus and the men caught in hypocrisy. I think, I think there's a lot here for us today. I think Jesus gives us a fantastic response to pick a side or go home. So our good news statement throughout this series is, while we were God's enemies, God loved us and he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And that is Jesus' mission to us. And we see in that mission, he offers a third way to a two-sided conflict, if you will. It's the way of connection. It's the, it's the way of love. Okay, so the first thing most of us will notice when we read this passage is that most of our Bibles, in some way, indicate that John 7:53 through 8:11 is not in the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John. Uh, in other manuscripts, the story appears in different places in John, and still another place the story pops up in the Gospel of Luke instead. So, so what does that say to us? Well, I think it says, as most scholars say, that this passage was quite possibly not originally part of John's Gospel, but it was added later. Now, hear me on this, though. It does not mean that it didn't happen or that it shouldn't be part of Scripture. And that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what most of these scholars say either. The passage may have originally been part of Luke's Gospel. Or it might have originally been part of John, but taken out because some think that Jesus appears to be soft on sin here. And then maybe it was brought back in later years. Now, almost all scholars say that they believe this is an authentic story of, about Jesus, and that's why it found itself into the Gospel of John. Now, regardless of the passage history, we who value Scripture as the Word of God, superintended by the Holy Spirit, brought down to us through time, value John 7:53 through 8:11 as being there for a reason. Okay? 
So let's dive in this morning. Verse 2 states, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So this is a familiar scene throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaching at the temple courts. So here's a model uh, of the temple uh, from the Israel Museum. I took this picture when I was there. I've showed this before. I'll probably show it again. I think it really helps us to visualize what the temple looked like and specifically where the temple courts are. Verse 3 states, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? So, in humiliating fashion, they drag her, probably half naked, out in the public, even into the temple courts, saying that she was caught in the very act. A commentator, Gail O'Day, notes right off the bat that there are some irregularities here in regards to the law. First, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they provide no witnesses to sustain that she was caught in the act. Right, both in Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15, the law makes it clear that there must be two or three witnesses for someone to be put to death. Okay, that's the first irregularity. What do you think the second irregularity is? Okay, it's not that hard. Think about it. Who's missing from this equation? Somebody say it. The guy. That's right. It takes two. Where is he? Who is he? Why isn't he drug out as well? They say to Jesus, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They're saying, come on, Jesus, pick a side. But what does the law of Moses really say about adultery? Leviticus 20, 10 states, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22 states, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So a day day rightly concludes that these guys, they're, they're really not interested in Jesus' interpretation of the law. Now, I'm going to spare some of the graphic detail here about where I'm, where I'm about to go, but commentator Stephen Cole states that you know, to catch someone in the act of adultery so that it would actually hold up in a Jewish trial for execution was no small feat when you think about all the witnesses and all that was really required to do that. The commentator Randy Whitaker notes that th- there's really no evidence that stoning people for adultery was really a regular occurrence in the first century by the time we get to the first century in the Jewish world. So this, this whole display is, kind of, is unusual, and frankly, it probably created quite a scene in the temple courts. The gospel writer states why in verse 6. He says that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. Now, many think that it's likely that these scribes and these Pharisees had set this trap to catch this woman so that they could trap Jesus and accuse him. And if this is true, then not only is the question a trap, but this whole setup is a trap fraught with sin on everyone's part. And if that doesn't make you angry enough, consider this. So these leaders mention specifically stoning her. I think there's a possibility that this was a girl engaged to be married. Why would I say that? 
Back in Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24, it states, If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take them both out to the gate of that town and stone them to death. This is the only reference in the law specifically to stoning and adultery. So, if that were true, then it's likely that we could be talking about a girl as young as 13 to 14 years old. Basically a frightened teenager. Do have your blood boiling yet? And again, if they're basing this specifically on verses 23 and 24 of Deuteronomy 22, where's the man? Either way, these leaders are objectifying this woman. She's just a pawn for their purpose. But verse 6 says, But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay, I have no doubt that you have heard many sermons. Uh, you've heard, been a part of Bible studies with vast speculation about what Jesus might have been writing in the dirt. You know, this is one of those parts of Scripture, I think, that really stimulates our imagination. What is he writing? A few years ago, Pastor Stacy preached this passage, and, and in a study, he found that a scholar, he found that scholar who stated that that scholar found 36 explanations among commentators about what Jesus is doing here. 36. So you've heard some of these. Some say Jesus was writing the word adulteress on the ground to clearly state that he knew what the sin was or that he was writing the sins of all those who were around him or specifically maybe the names of the accusers. Um, of course, the reality is we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dust. John doesn't tell us. And perhaps that's the point. Other scholars think the real issue here is that Jesus is ignoring their question altogether. And that by stooping down and writing in the ground, he's stating very clearly in a culturally relevant way that, that he's refusing to engage in their little debate. He's saying, in essence, this isn't a fair question. I'm not going to answer it. But these guys, they're persistent. They press on. Verse 7 states, when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to him, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Commentator Bruce Maline makes the point that Jesus' statement took into account really a special role that witnesses of a sin were required to fulfill. And it was their responsibility to initiate the stoning. And he continues, accordingly, they needed to be appropriate witnesses who had neither connived in any way in the sin or been backwards in trying to prevent it. So to me, Jesus' resumption of writing in the ground indicates that he's, he's finished talking to these scribes and Pharisees. He's kind of done with them. He's not going to engage. He's not going to answer. All right, so Jesus' words about throwing the first stone in verse 7, they've, they've come pretty well known both in the church and outside the church. And it's interesting to me how that happens, sometimes with parts of Scripture. You know, these words have kind of become a cultural adage, kind of a morality check for self-righteousness. Verse 9, though, says that at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with this woman standing there. So they leave. One at a time, perhaps the oldest grasped the humility first, and they, their conscience was convicting them, and the younger ones followed suit. So an interesting note from Whitaker, when you think about 
what Jesus says and how they respond to what he says, those who came to condemn ended up really condemning themselves by not casting the first stone. N.T. Wright names the sin here. It's the deep-rooted sin which uses, a God, uses the God-given law as a means of making oneself out to be righteous, when in fact, it was meant to shine the light of God's judgment in the dark places of our own heart. See, they come to trap Jesus, but they end up being the men caught in hypocrisy. So they all leave. And here, in my mind, is the powerful image in this. This is the beautiful image. This is, this is the image that I think of when I think of this, this story. Only Jesus and the, and the woman are left. And I think this is the image that we all must connect with. You know, it's just her standing there with Jesus riding in the dirt. How long did that go on? It's just me standing there with Jesus riding in the dirt. It's just you standing there with Jesus riding in the dirt. Your accusers are gone, but you stand accused. You know it. The only one who can throw a stone at you is right there in front of you. And he straightens up and he says, where are they? Or where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus cleared. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, he doesn't brush aside her sin. N.T. Wright adds, forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means sin does matter. But God is choosing to set it aside. Whitaker notes, Jesus does not explicitly say he forgives the woman, but such is the implication of his saying that he does not condemn her and then telling her not to sin again. And yes, he condemns the sin, but not the sinner. But more than that, he calls her to a new life. You see, the gospel is not only about the forgiveness of sins, but it's about a new quality of life that overcomes the power of sin. That's the power here. What a powerful passage. What a gift of, this is to us. So what does this pa passage say to us today in our context? You know, a few things stand out to me. First, Jesus' example demonstrates that if you follow him, you don't always have to pick a side. You don't always have to engage in the debate as the world defines the debate. There's often a third way that's more in alignment with the Gospels and with what Jesus would do. You see, if he picked a side, they had a plan ready to publicly condemn him either way. In their eyes, if he, if he doesn't condemn her and stone her, then he's soft on sin. He isn't keeping the law of Moses. On the other hand, if he does agree that she, be, she should be stoned, then he gets himself in trouble with the Romans, and he's, and he's viewed as a troublemaker. See, they thought they had a brilliant plan, but Jesus had a third way. It's the way of love. He cares more about connecting than he does judging. And he has every right to judge, but he doesn't judge her or her accusers. See, Jesus will say later in John 12, 47, that in his earthly ministry, he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He pursues relationship over judgment. And I want to come back to that in my third point this morning. 
I think secondly, I think this passage reminds us that all of us image bearers are the same. You know, we have repeatedly established throughout the series that all humankind bears the image of God. We are all precious to Jesus. And as we discussed last week in his mission to us, his, his kenosis, his emptying of himself to become one of us and to die for our sins, he made a way for all of us to be reconciled. And that means you, and that means your enemies. That means you and those who have hurt you, those who have sinned against you. That means you and those who oppose Jesus and oppose you for following Jesus. We all have sinned. The sins done by your enemies are no more egregious than the sins you have done. There's no hierarchy of sin. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes what we might think are some of the more egregious sins, and he broadens them to include all of us. He takes the sin of murder, and he broadens it to include even hatred against your brother or sister. And he takes the sin of adultery, and he broadens it to include even looking at a woman with lust in your heart. See, Jesus raises the bar on everything to include not just how we act or how we act out, but even when we, the things that run through our head, our thoughts, when we have the discipline not to act out. None of us has the right to throw the first stone. All have sinned. There is none not righteous. No, not one. Jesus is the only one that has a right to throw a stone at her. At her. At us. At our opponents. At our enemies. And he doesn't. He shows mercy. What I'm about to say might be kind of hard for some to hear. But I think... In our journey toward Christiformity, or our Christ-likeness, we're eventually going to be confronted with the reality that you must see your enemy as you see yourself. And I'm going to push this a little farther, that in your discipleship journey, you're going to need to get to the place where you see your face on the one who has hurt you. That you see your face on the one that you judge. And you might say, Kurt, that you're just asking too much. You don't know what I've been through. You clearly don't understand what I feel, and you don't know what's been done to me. And you may be right. I don't. But your loving Savior, Jesus, does. You know, he experienced it all. See, this little trap set for him today, in today's checks, is just one example of, of the many times his opposition, the many examples of opposition that he faced, from the very ones he came to save. And ultimately, Jesus' opponents succeed in getting him killed. But as we know, ultimately, he succeeds in his mission to love, mission of love, to die for those who opposed him so that he could connect with them and have a relationship with them if they choose. And that brings me to my last point this morning. I think this text reinforces that relational connection changes everything. After the accusers leave, Jesus simply says to the woman, go and sin no more. He offers her grace. He offers her a chance to connect and amend the relationship with the one that she is sinned against the most, her creator and her Lord. See, he offers her grace, but then he defines that life of grace as a life in which she's to learn what it means not to sin. This is a life of discipleship. And see, the grace is strong here. 
but that a bar of discipleship is high. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't condemn her, though he, in fact, is the only one without sin. See, the woman in John 8 is broken by her own sinful choices of adultery. She's broken also by the sinful choices of others, including the man she was with, of course, but also these religious leaders who objectify her and use her to accomplish their sinful and ungodly agenda. And Jesus speaks to her as one who has been sinned against, and he speaks to her as one who has sinned. He brings healing. He brings grace. He brings an alternative way of life to her. And you know what? He does the same thing for us. By the way, I think he offers the same choice to her accusers. You know, they stand there with their stones in hand, ready to execute a sinner. But the fact that they drop their stones and go away tells us that Jesus has reached something deep inside of them as well. You know, they, they are confronted with their own sin, and their response indicates they're not as righteous as they thought they were a few minutes ago. They don't know it, but they're just as broken as a woman is. And I think, I think that had any of these men dropped their rocks and dropped to their knees in repentance, Jesus would have offered them the same relationship that they desperately needed, the relationship they were born for. All right, so if attempts to make a relational connection, this third way that's demonstrated by Jesus in this text serve as our example, how do we apply it? Now, before I make an attempt at the solution, I need to ask a question, and this has kind of been on my mind for a while. So to set up this question, let me share this dream I have. It's, it's a big dream. Perhaps it's even an impossibility, you might say. It's, it's a crazy dream, but here it goes. All right, what if... What if all judgment was removed from Facebook and Twitter? I mean, seriously, what if there was a ban on it? You might say, well, Kurt, it'd go out of business. Well, you're probably right. But for the purpose of my illustration, maybe so. But with that in mind, the question, and this, this is not just rhetorical, but who here has successfully changed someone's mind or opinion through their post on social media? I mean, who has tangible evidence of a change, my opinion? I want proof. I want to see the fruit. And that may be, if it's you and you have a story to tell me about how you did that and how, you, how it worked for you, I'm serious. Reach out to me. I want to hear your story. Dan White Jr. says in chapter 6 of Love Over Fear that changing people's belief systems is overrated. It's overrated. He adds, our ability to debate someone into submission is the weakest tool we have in our toolbox. The weakest tool we have at our disposal. What changes lives ultimately is how we receive and give love. So White shares a story in the book about after the last political election, um, he had to meet with someone from his church who had a major beef with him regarding uh, the fact that Dan didn't make a public endorsement of a specific candidate in the election. He doesn't say which one. It doesn't matter. Dan's point in the illustration is that the stress created by the anticipation of this meeting with this person, set him on a path of preparation to defend his decision that, that was exhausting as he poured hours of work into his defense. And he finally concluded and he confessed that it didn't initially occur to him cross his mind to seek a relational connection first, to move toward this congregant with affection rather than with defense. 
And he rightly ponders, what if I, I said, what if we cared more about connecting than judging? Without relational connection, I, I think there's no hope for change or healing. So regarding our, our relational need, White states, nothing, absolutely nothing can replace the soul's hunger for a living, in-person, real-time connection. From the first foundations of the world, we were hardwired for connection. And lastly, he says, when love passes from one to another, there's a giving and a receiving that leaves both fuller and less terrified of being in the world. Let me say that again. When love passes from one person to another, there's a giving and a receiving that leaves both of them fuller and less terrified of being in the world. When I read that, I scribbled a note in the side of my book, and I wrote, Stephen ministers know this. We spend hours training our Stephen ministers that they're not fixers. They don't correct behavior. They don't fix grieving people. They don't fix people who are making destructive decisions. They offer presence. They offer prayer. They are caregivers. That's it. Jesus is the caregiver. And he's the one who alters belief. He's the one who alters behavior. He's the one who convicts of sin. He's the one who grants forgiveness of sin. And he's the one who brings healing and restoration. Stephen ministers are skilled, but they're skilled in offering a relationship through which the cure giver, Jesus, works. See, I think some of us have been more interested in being right than connecting in a relationship. Here's another litmus test. Can you name a close friend, a Christ follower or otherwise, maybe not, who holds a dramatically differing ideology than you do? Let me clarify. I'm not just talking about acquaintance. Not do you know someone, but I mean a close friend. And if you can't answer that question, yes. How might God be calling you out of your comfort zone? So one final story here from White's book regarding a creative disruption to connect. You know, at the end of chapter 6, he tells the story uh, about residents in an apartment complex in San Antonio, Texas, uh, who were obsessed with kids who were jumping a fence in the complex to get a drink from a fountain that was in a locked, in a, in a fenced-in tennis court. Adjacent to the tennis court was a basketball court where these teens would play basketball, but there was no drinking fountain in there, so they jumped the fence. The apartment complex residents argued. They picked sides. They were awful to each other on social media. Shocker. Wright says, the apartment Facebook page was a hot mess. The language of fear was ever, everywhere. One would say, I fear that we're telling these kids they can't be kids. The other would say, I fear that we are telling these kids they can be vandals. Until one day, a creative disruption occurred. Across the street, in the car, in the apartment com- from the apartment complex and the basketball court, There was a man in his 50s named George. George installed on his own dime a drinking fountain in his front yard, and he put a sign on it that said, have a drink on us. When White interviewed George, he said, I don't know what I think about these kids jumping fences. I just wanted to give those kids a drink. Now I get to say hello to them on my front yard. To which White says, amazing. Notice that jumping fences is not his focus. Relationship was. That's a creative disruption. You see, the world may be in a culture war. 
So maybe, maybe the church in some ways. Maybe our families. We need a new imagination for fighting fear. We need a creative disruption. We need to value connection over winning the debate. So regarding this passage this morning, which I now think of as the men caught in hypocrisy, regarding these men who brought this woman before Jesus, White says, if you find yourself joining with others to heap scorn, mockery, or shame on an individual, whether publicly or privately, God is not with you in those actions. Let me say that again. If you find yourself joining in with others to heap scorn, mockery, or shame on an individual, whether privately or publicly, God is not with you in those actions. That goes for what we say about any public figure or any other image bearer. And we've all done it. Whether it's with our mouse, whether it's with our post, whether it's with our replies to post, or maybe if it's only the judgmental thoughts that have run through our mind, we have all done it. But what we should do is drop our stones and drop to our knees before Jesus. And perhaps this morning as we sing this last song, that might, what you, might be what you want to do. This altar is open, or if you feel comfortable just kneeling at your pew, or those who are worshiping with us from home, maybe do the same. You know, just like the woman, he will not accuse us. He will not condemn us either. He wants to connect with us. He wants the best for us, and he wants us to sin no more. Would you pray with me?